Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to be back together, worshiping together, and I'm excited to preach this text to you this morning. Although I have to concede, um, it was a little difficult for me this week to wrestle with this text and, and in some ways wrestle it to the ground and understand it and to be able to apply it in an appropriate way for you um, this morning. But for those of you who were not here last week, I want to do at least a little bit of a review in order to catch some of us up um, within the book of James. So we just started this series, walking through it, um, essentially verse by verse, going through this great book, five chapters together. And you remember that this person named James is actually the Lord's brother. He is the half-brother of Jesus. He is the son of Mary and Joseph. Of course, Jesus being conceived of the Virgin Mary, but yet James himself was conceived of Joseph and Mary, the brother of Jesus, half-brother anyways. And he's writing to these people that it refer, James refers to as the, the 12 tribes in dispersion. And like I mentioned last week, I take that in reference to the church. That the, that the church has scattered throughout the area and that James is writing to all of these persecuted ones in order to, to encourage them. And the first place that you remember is in trials. So all of these persecuted Christians are in the midst of a trial and he's going to now encourage them within this trial that they will encounter trials but that the trial is going to do something within them. And that is what is so important for these persecuted Christians and for all of us to wrap our minds around is that all of us are going to go through trials, but yet these trials are going to produce something in us. It's going to be the testing of our faith that produces steadfastness. But then the steadfastness isn't just an end to itself. The steadfastness is then going to be producing within us maturity. It's going to make us more Christ-like. And it's going to lead us down the road. So there's, you remember this whole spectrum of trials that we're going to go through that's going to produce endurance that's going to make it so that we can have a whole spectrum of maturity and growth toward Jesus. But if you notice in the last verse of our text last week, the last few words, it says, lacking in nothing. And that's important because that's going to hinge us to our text this morning in verse 5. Because it says at the end of verse 4, lacking in nothing, at the beginning of verse 5, if you lack. So, I don't want you to be lacking in anything. I want you to be able to be mature and grow into Christ. But then, if you feel as though you're lacking, verse 5, let him ask of God. And so it's important when you think of it, if any of you lack specifically wisdom to let him ask of God, that this is not so much, at least in James's mind, he's not using this as a universal truth. Okay, and what I mean by that is oftentimes on a coffee mug or on a bumper sticker or something, you might, you might see something that says, if any of you that lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And it's meaning in the entire spectrum of life. And there might be a sense, certainly, in which it is universally true, but that is not how James is using it. James is using it specifically in the context of trial. If you lack wisdom in a trial, ask of God. If you're lacking wisdom within trial, it is then you ask of God, indicating that wisdom is mandatory for the Christian life. That a Christian should be growing in his or her wisdom. It's vital for the process of sanctification. A person who is asking God and trusting Him alone for the wisdom that they need in this life is what the title of the sermon is, the singular-minded Christian. Somebody who's going to God 
And they're going to God alone for the wisdom that they need in this life, which is exactly what God's desire is. He wants us to have this singular mind toward Him. And we have an example in the Bible of this, don't we? Somebody, think with me, somebody within the Old Testament who asks for wisdom, who seemingly has this singular mindedness toward God, so much so that God tells him, ask for anything, and he says, I want wisdom. Who am I talking about? Solomon. Solomon. Specifically asking for wisdom. You remember that Solomon was very young. He was going to rule the people after his father David. And God comes to Solomon in a dream and he tells Solomon to ask for anything. And the young man doesn't even hesitate. He doesn't ask for money. He doesn't ask for fame. He doesn't ask for a strong army. Although God's going to give him all of those things. What he asks for is wisdom. First Kings chapter 4 says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. And then down to verse 34 of that chapter, And the people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Wisdom... Had, or excuse me, Solomon had all of this wisdom handed directly to him by God. It was, it was God who gave Solomon all of this wisdom. He was singular and focused toward his God. He wrote thousands of proverbs and he wrote a thousand songs filled with the wisdom of God. But even Solomon, right, for all of the terrible decisions he, that he made, which weren't that many up until later on in his life, It was a terrible decision in regard to all of the wives and concubines that he had. Now, I won't get into what the Bible says specifically in the Old Testament about polygamy. But I want you to notice that it's not so much the fact that he had a thousand wives and concubines. That's the trouble, at least within this. It's the fact that all of the wives and concubines that he had led him away from his singular focus on God. That the paganism of his wives... He began to want to, to accommodate. And so he began to build altars to their Baals and to, all, to their gods, even to Molech, whom they would sacrifice babies to. Solomon, this one who was supposedly so wise, builds this altar to Molech. And in 1 Kings 11, it says, He had seven wives, 700 wives, who were princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. So his wives turned his heart from the singular focus toward God, toward the world. So for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. You remember specifically said about David that he was a man after God's own heart. That David himself was singular in his focus toward God. Solomon here, toward the end of his life, his wives turn his heart away from being wholly devoted to the Lord his God. And so what happens with Solomon is that Solomon becomes what the Bible describes as a double-minded man. He becomes a double-minded man. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord. The paganism of his wives turns his heart away. And so God is so angry with Solomon's heart being turned away from him. 
And he basically tells him that the only reason that I'm not going to strip away the kingdom from you, Solomon, is because of what I promised your father David in the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel chapter 7, where he promises David that the kingly line is going to remain in David's line. And of course, Jesus is eventually going to come from David's line. And so for that reason, I'm not going to strip away the kingdom from you. But that didn't mean that a whole bunch of trouble wasn't going to come on Solomon. That because of Solomon's heart being turned away from the Lord and serving and accommodating all of these other gods, massive instability comes up within the kingdom to the point where after Solomon, the kingdom splits, doesn't it? We have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And so Solomon's double-mindedness as the king and as the representative of the entire people of Israel is not just locked into who he is and his own personal instability, it actually becomes a national instability for the entire kingdom. And if you and I are going to live lives of faith, where there is great stability, it is going to need to be the kind of life that has this singular focus on God, specifically in the context of trials. When people are walking through trials, what is revealed is where their eyes are looking. That if they love the Lord, their God, with all of their heart, soul, mind, or strength, that is going to be seen very clearly. What you begin to see is that their their affections and their love and their focus and their faith, that it's all on God if they're singularly focused. But if they're double-minded, then when they're walking through that trial, that it's going to be split. That they might even say... Yeah, I love the Lord my God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then the way they act or the way they think is in a total worldly way. This is why following James' encouragement toward these persecuted Christians that he's writing to, he now exhorts them on how to think as this endurance is being produced within them. So you're going to be going through all this. You need to count it all joy. This endurance is going to be built up within you to make you a better Christian. But if you lack it, you need to ask for wisdom. And now I'm going to exhort you that while you're going through trials, live with a singular focus. And so the context remains trials. And James is requiring that the persecuted Christians and all of us who are here this morning, that we also have this single-mindedness. And why does he need to do this? Why does he need to exhort us to be single-minded toward God? Because if we aren't single-minded, then we're double-minded. And the only thing that is going to result in our lives is what you see in verse 7 7 and 8 specifically. And that is instability. But I want you to notice how this single-mindedness is displayed. Ultimately, it's an asking first for wisdom. But from whom do we ask for wisdom? Well, we ask for wisdom from God. By what do we ask for wisdom? We ask for it by faith. And with what do we ask for wisdom from God? We ask with focus. And the outline is on the back of your bulletin if you would like to follow along with that. But first, the single-minded Christian within a trial asks God for wisdom. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So as we get into this idea of wisdom and asking God for wisdom, it might be even more appropriate to figure out exactly what wisdom is, right? But we need to start in some ways with what wisdom is not. Wisdom does not equal a high IQ, Wisdom does not equal the ability to put a mass of information in your mind. It is not a photographic memory. It is not this incredibly high 
intellect. Frankly, wisdom is not even the result of living a long time. You can live to the age 300 and you can be a total fool in the eyes of God. You think of somebody, graduation time nowadays, and lots of people graduating with, of course, a diploma from high school and college graduates, but there are many who are graduating uh, with PhDs, right? And those letters, PhD, mean doctor of philosophy. That word philosophy is a mash together of two words, phileo and sophia, love of wisdom. Love of wisdom. And you can have 10 PhDs and be an utter fool. You can have an element of worldly wisdom, but you cannot have a godly wisdom without beginning with God. Because what does the Bible say is the first step of having wisdom? Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. Now, what he's saying is not be afraid of God and cower from God and then you'll start to be wise. That's not how he's using the word fear there. He's using the word fear in the sense that it's, it's honor, reverence, respect. The, the respect and the honor and the reverence of God, that is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't have that, then you will not begin the process of growing in wisdom. The question is specifically asked in the book of Job, chapter 28, where it says, But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, It's not in me, and the sea says, It's not in me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. So, so where are we going to find wisdom is the question in Job 28. Where, where are we going to find this wisdom? And he goes on to say, well, the sea is saying it's not in me. The deep is saying it's not in me. There, there's no way to value this thing. You cannot weigh it out in gold or in silver. So where are we going to get wisdom? Further down in that chapter, it says, God understands the way of it, and he knows its place. And so even all the way back in the book of Job, who many people consider to be the oldest book in the entire Bible, it's really echoing what we find here in James chapter 1, isn't it? Where am I going to go if I need wisdom? Am I going to go to the creation? Am I going to weigh it out with gold or silver and buy it somehow? No. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. He is the source of wisdom. He alone understands it. But we still haven't quite gotten to what wisdom is exactly, have we? And there are several different ideas as to what wisdom is. We've looked at what it isn't, but what it is, is kind of hard to pin down on some level. But the way that I understand wisdom is that it is not mere knowledge. If you have knowledge, it doesn't automatically mean that you have wisdom, but you cannot have wisdom if you do not have knowledge. Does that make sense? And so wisdom is the application of knowledge and God's perspective on a matter. And so this can be fleshed out with different words like walking in wisdom, walking in the consistent application of God's word, or, or something like discernment. You think you have to have wisdom in order to execute uh, discernment on a matter. The ability to discern I've heard, is not so much the ability to uh, discern between right and wrong as much as it is the matter of discerning between what is right and what is almost right. That is where discernment comes in. And so this wisdom, this wise person, seems to have a God-given perspective on how to walk through trials, on how to walk through the difficulties and situations of life. And so you need wisdom. 
You need this perspective, this divine perspective. The only place that you can go to is to God. And what a promise we find in James chapter 1, verse 5, at the end. It will be given to you. Look there again at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So this, this is a promise. That it will happen, and it will happen on the basis of who God is. And that's the encouraging part about this. That it happens, this wisdom is given on the basis of who God is, ultimately, as God being a generous giver. It's a little clunky in translation from going from the Greek to the English. But what the idea here is, is that God is a liberally giving God. That he's a generous God when it comes to these things. He's a liberal parent to his children. And this is part of the character of your heavenly father. That he's a generous giver. I think so often when we think about God, we think about our relationship with God, maybe review the things that we have or that he's given to us, or even in the context of trial and how we walk through it, we often wonder, is God being stingy with me? He's not giving me what I was really hoping that he would give to me. I'm not as happy or joyful in this situation that I thought that I would be. But God is not a stingy God. He's, he, he's not holding back in that sense. He, he's going to liberally give you wisdom. You remember when Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount and he says, ask and it will be given unto you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. And that our Father in heaven will give good things to those who ask of him. And then what does Jesus do? He brings up a child and he says, which one of you, if your child were to ask a stone or ask for a piece of bread, would you give them a stone? Like, I'm hungry. I need something to eat. And you're like, oh, well, here, kid, here's a rock. No. A father wouldn't do that to his children. How much more so would the heavenly father love his children and give to them in their time of need. You do not have a stingy God. You do not have a Father in Heaven who would delight to withhold from you. You have a Father in Heaven who delights to give to you. And so the God of the trial will give you the wisdom to walk in the trial. And He loves to do this. Like You're not an embarrassment to God. You're not an embarrassment as a, as a child when you come to Him and you say, God, can I please have wisdom to endure through this trial? That, that's why it says within the text that He gives without reproach. One translation says that He will not rebuke you for asking. Just like you would never rebuke your child in their time of hunger and say, well, here's a stone and don't come and ask again. You would never do that and neither would He. That He gives liberally. He's not going to look at you and say, man, I, I'm surprised you just don't have the wisdom to get through this on your own. I'm surprised you're not smart enough to make it through this situation by yourself that our Heavenly Father loves to give to His children. In fact, the idea here is kind of the other side of how we're supposed to be toward him, that singularity of focus. The idea is that he is singularly focused toward his children. He gives generously to whom? He gives generously to all. All of who? All of his children. We ask our Father for wisdom who is single-minded toward us, and he will give that wisdom to us. And the response we must be single-minded toward our Father. 
But notice next that we ask for wisdom in that single-mindedness and we ask of him for wisdom by something, by faith. Look at verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. So we ask for wisdom by faith. Faith is an indispensable quality in the Christian life. You don't have faith, then you don't have Christ. And the single-minded Christian is going to have faith, and they're going to be a person who asks in faith without any kind of doubt in who their God is. Remember, he's already laid the groundwork on the character of God. He is a giver. He is a liberal giver to his children. And so we base our faith upon who God is. And so we ask for wisdom and faith, knowing that God is who God is, and that he alone can provide what he is going to provide. And so you think of it, what is faith? Hebrews 11 verse 1 is just succinct, clear. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. So, So faith is the opposite of how we often treat it. And certainly of how the world treats it. As this like nebulous crutch for Christians. That's what faith is. But faith is actually... Assurance. Faith is conviction built and rested upon the foundation of God. And so when you ask for something by faith, knowing the character of your father, you display that you're single-minded toward God. Now let me remind you of something else that Jesus has said, and this is common in the book of James. He's constantly almost echoing his older brother, Jesus. But you remember with Jesus with the fig tree? And they're walking along and the fig tree doesn't have any figs on it. And so Jesus like curses this tree and he causes this fig tree to wither up and die. And the disciples are shocked that Jesus did this. And Jesus says, If you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it'll happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So the key is to have faith, to have this single-mindedness toward God, that God alone is going to do the work, to have the assurance, to have the conviction, and God is going to answer the prayer, whether by saying yes, or whether by saying no, or whether by saying wait, or however he's going to answer your request. Now I want to have a little bit of a caveat here because so many people are willing, false teachers, are willing to use a verse like this in Matthew and they're willing to use a verse like James that we've already looked at and apply it as though it's a blank check that God gives to you that all you have to do is write in the memo line what you're writing your check out for and you can cash it and you can have it if you have the faith. And that is not what is getting across here. Ask and you shall receive Okay, I'm going to ask for a new Audi. Or it's beautiful outside. I would love a new Sea-Doo, right? But that is not what God is intending. That all you have to do is kind of muster it up, believe that it's going to happen, cash out the check, and God's going to do it. But friends, That is not what the Lord and and James are encouraging us to do, specifically in the context of James. He's not giving you the opportunity to ask for whatever you want, whenever you want, in terms of material possession. 
that God is going to be this genie in a lamp and give it to you simply because you asked. But if you are walking by faith, and if you're living by faith, which is the call for every Christian, and you ask God for wisdom, He's going to give it to you. Like if you ask for something within the context of the will of God, for you in that situation, that this is what He's going to give to you. But this is not clearance to ask for whatever, whenever. And thinking that way does not exemplify that you're singular-minded toward your God. What it actually displays is that you're double-minded. That you, yes, I want God on this side, but I want all the stuff the world can offer me on this side. Look at verse 6 again. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. So the person who doubts God, metaphor, is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. I can remember when I was in junior high and high school and we used to play sports against this team that was actually on an island. Really wealthy people that all lived on this island. They had a small school. And so we would go over and we would play them. And we would have to take the ferry from the mainland about an hour to get to Block Island. And so a couple times a year we would do that to play basketball or baseball. And they would come and play us. But there was this one time where the ocean felt particularly rough. And, and I grew up in the ocean state, but the ocean's really not my thing. And so we're on this boat, and it's rocking a little more than I would like it to. You look out, and the, you know, the waves are up and down uh, a little more than you would like them to, making the boat kind of you know, move around a little more than I would like it to. <laughs> so ebbing and flowing, the wind tossing these winds about, bringing at least a small level of instability to the ferry, at least in my eyes. And for those of you who have been on rough water, it's not fun that you look out into those waves and they're dark and they're big. Sometimes when you're up close, they look bigger, closer than when you were further away. But I want you to take a moment to picture the middle of the dark ocean in that way. And when you think about it, that's exactly what the inside of some of your hearts feel like. That it's got that ebb and flow, these dark waves that are being whipped around by the wind. And your heart, when you look at it, looks like that. Like if you could describe your heart, you would say, it's James's metaphor. And when we are in trial, and when we're going through it, and things don't feel stable anymore, and it feels like the swell of the ocean, that up and down, that instability abounding, friend, it is not the trial that is making you feel unstable. It is your doubting that is making you feel unstable. The waves are not the trial. The waves are your doubt. And we want to point to the finger at God and say, stop rocking the boat. Do that peace be still thing, right? Stop the trial. And I just have to imagine God pointing back and saying, Quit doubting me. Quit doubting me. It's your doubt that is bringing the instability. It is not the trial. It's like when the disciples and Jesus, again, that they're on that ship that night and the waves are throwing them around and Jesus is sleeping and the disciples are panicking. Like, what's the difference 
between Jesus and the disciples. The disciples are doubting. Jesus doesn't doubt his father. And so must we not doubt our father in the midst of trials. That it's rocking, yes. But it's not your trial, it's your doubt that is doing that. And the instability of your life is the result of doubt. It is not the result of faith. The person who has that singularity of focus in God and has that faith in God alone to provide and to sustain and to give all that they need, they're not rocking around. Even though the trial is hard, it's the person who is doubting. But you notice in verse 7 that a person who asks wisdom of God while doubting, they'll receive nothing. Look at verses 7 and 8. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. There's, there's that laser focus, right? The person that doesn't ask of the Lord in faith should not suppose that he will receive anything, James says, from the Lord. And so you might say within a trial... I have prayed and I have prayed and I have prayed and I have prayed for wisdom or help or strength or whatever I need and it just doesn't seem like God is providing what I need. Well, are you praying with doubt in your heart? Are you praying with doubt in your heart? Because if you're praying with doubt in your heart, it's not going to be provided for you. These verses make it possible to pray all that you want. But if you're praying in doubt, James says that you shouldn't expect anything. The person who is praying in doubt to God is making prayer out to be meaningless. It's like running a mile every day and half a mile is to Dunkin' Donuts and you eat a couple donuts and then you run a half a mile home. You just rendered the run totally useless. You might as well not even waste your time, right? But so it is with the person who prays with doubts in their hearts. There's no sense in even wasting your time. James very clearly says... That the person who does that running of prayer, but yet doubts and binges on the donuts, it totally nullifies the prayer. This is a double-minded person. This is a person who has traded the certainty of God for the uncertainty of the world. As many have put it, a double-minded person really carries the idea of being double-souled. That this is a person who cannot commit to God alone. This is a person who is not all in in regard to the Lord. The idea isn't that of a hypocrite per se, where they kind of say one thing and do another thing. The idea here is that they have two eyes like a chameleon at the same time, both desiring or thinking something differently. So a chameleon has the ability with its weird eyes, cone-like eyes, to look in two different directions at one time. They can see all around, basically 360, looking at two different things. Our two eyes focus in on one, one human, don't they? So if we're having a conversation and I look at you in the eye, we say, right? But my two eyes focus on your one eye, right? But a chameleon could look at both your eyes if it wanted to. A chameleon can look at a predator to his left, And he can look at his prey to his right. And Christians, so often in our lives, we have an eye toward God. And we have an eye toward the world. One eye is on God and wants to apply his wisdom. The other eye is on the world and wants to apply their wisdom. And because we're double-minded, we have this double vision, which ultimately doesn't lead us anywhere but instability. 
An unstable life is the lot of the Christian who is not singular in his focus toward God. And again, some of you are in a trial right now and things feel unstable and for the longest time, you've been possibly blaming God for that instability or you indirectly blame God by blaming the trial that you know he brought into your life Instead, But the real reason that you don't have peace in your life in the midst of trial is because you're not truly focused on God alone. You've got some focus on God, yet you doubt Him. And if you doubt Him, peace in the midst of trial is going to fall away. I think one of the clearest examples of double-mindedness in the Bible is found in 1 Kings, where you may remember Elijah the great prophet of God, and he's prophesying to the people of Israel during the reign of the wicked king Ahab. And Ahab was a terrible human being who had a foreign pagan wife named Jezebel, and she was even worse than him, right? I mean, some of you name your kids Bible names. Nobody names their kid Jezebel for a reason, or Ahab, right? And the Bible slaps onto Ahab that famous saying, and he did what was evil, in the sight of the Lord. He set up an altar for Baal. He set up an Asherah for the worship of the goddess. He did not follow the commands of the Lord. He was truly a horrific human being and actively led the people of God astray. And so Ahab was not a double-minded man. Ahab was singular in his focus toward wickedness. But then on the other side, you have the prophet Elijah. And Elijah at least has these wonderful seasons where he is truly devoted and focused on God. He has his own trials and his own issues where he begins to doubt and he has his own instability. But at least for a season, he has this great focus on God and he is single-minded toward God. But then between the single-mindedness toward God of Elijah and the single-mindedness of Ahab toward wickedness, you have the people of Israel. And they're oscillating between the two, aren't they? And you remember that the situation comes to a head with Elijah facing off against the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And so King Ahab gets the people of Israel and he gets the prophets together at the place called Mount Carmel. And Elijah says this to God's people who are not remaining true to God but oscillating between Baal and Yahweh. He says this, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal... Then follow him. And then it says this. And the people did not answer him a word. So how long, people of Israel, are you going to oscillate here? If God is God, follow him. If, if Baal is God, then you follow him. And the silent response of the people is deafening, isn't it? Because they had made their choice. They were now going to be singular in their mind toward Baal. And can I ask you the same question though this morning? That Elijah asked God's people then, can I ask you it now? How long will you go limping between two different opinions? How long are you going to live your life in a way that is double-minded? How long are you going to live in a way that, yeah, you acknowledge God, and that God is sovereign, He's going to provide a list, but yet, over here on the other side, you've got to have it. You may not be on the side of a mountain, cheering for 450 prophets of of a false god. But the comforts and the things of this world, the opinion of the world, the thought patterns of the world, and the wisdom of the world had their hook set in you. 
And that tension of being double-minded is very real. And my hope is that you, and you realize now, if, if this is you, that you realize that you're being double-minded and that you're asking yourself, okay, yeah, I think I am being double-minded, so what do I do now? How do I adjust this? How do I get that singular focus on God? Turn over in James to James chapter 4, just a page or so over. James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Nearness to God. Clean hands. Pure heart. So this is a cleansing of your hands. This is actions. This is a purifying of your heart. This is your inner self. And the only place where we can go for such cleansing and purification is to Christ. That Christ is the fountainhead where He is, right? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood. They lose all their guilty stains. And it's underneath that fountain of Jesus that we go to. It's not... Open up your Old Testament and look to the Jewish ritualistic water, wash your hands and do this and offer this sacrifice. No, it's coming to Christ. It's coming back to the cross. It's coming back to the gospel and saying, Jesus Christ has died for my sins. He was buried. He rose again for my sins. And on the basis of that sacrifice, I come for cleansing. I come for my heart to be purified. I come... And again, I have lost my focus and I am double-minded. I am double-souled. And so I come to Him now and I plead Christ and I ask Him for singular focus. And may God give that to all of us today. Let's pray.